we begin, is this um, somebody's Bible? It was left here a couple weeks ago. Still nobody has claimed it, which is kind of weird. So, all right, well, it's up here. Um, if, if it's yours, if you remember it's yours, um, it's right there. If you know whose it might be, it's a Charles Stanley Bible. There's no name in it. So if you know who it might belong to, let them know that we have a Bible up here. Or if you're listening, your Bible is right there in the chair. Also, you know, I forgot to mention, I don't know how I forgot to mention this, but some of you might not know this, but we found out that our fourth child that's due in November is going to be a girl. Uh, so uh, for us, that is a, that's something that I've been praying for, she's been praying for, because we have three boys, and my brothers, they have boys. So girls in our family does take an act of God. Uh, so we're grateful. We are grateful for that. Um, I just want to share that, that news in case you had not heard. Um, but welcome this morning. Glad you could uh, join us. Um, before we begin, uh, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer, seeking wisdom and discernment from his word. Father, we come to you humbly before you um, as sinners, unworthy of your wisdom. But you call us to it, and we thank you for that, Father. And we ask that you will wash us clean, that you will sanctify us and convict us by your word, uh, by the power of the Spirit that you have dwelling within us this morning. Help us to hear what we need to hear. Help us to respond appropriately and to do so with confidence um, in your grace and love. Um, we thank you for that, Father, and we just ask that you will um, be with us here this morning. For your glory, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so our text today is 1 Samuel chapter 4 through chapter 7. Uh, so if you have your Bible, uh, please go ahead and open up uh, to that place. If you need a Bible, we have some in the back. If you grab one, it's yours. It's a gift. So just take it and own it. Um, now, we're not going to do our usual of reading the text word for word like we normally do, uh, but we are going to go over the passage still. We're still going to use the scripture of, of, of God's word, um, and we're going to go through it. We're just not going to read it and then talk about it. We're just going to talk about it as we go through it. You with me? All right. So, but I would encourage you to have the scripture open so that as I talk about it, if I miss a detail or if the context doesn't come quite as clear as I would like it to, you can refer to the actual word uh, to check me and just to maybe get more understanding to where we are at. Uh, today, we are going to learn about Ebenezer. And no, I know some of you are thinking this because some of you already mentioned it this morning, not Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, I'm sure many of you, uh, as we just heard, you're familiar with the song, Come Thou Vound of Every Blessing. And in that second verse, it talks about how I raise my Ebenezer. But most people don't know what Ebenezer is. What does it mean? Why does he say raise my Ebenezer? It's why many modern versions remove Ebenezer from the song rather than just going to scripture and learning what does Ebenezer mean. So today, that's exactly what we're going to, going to do. Uh, we're going to find out and hopefully provide a greater meaning to this popular hymn um, and which will lead us to greater worship and greater edification uh, as people of God as we look to the Israelites who, as we come to learn and will continue to learn, they themselves were very much prone to wandering. So we're going to start in chapter 4 with the battle of the Philistines. Now, you might be wondering who are the Philistines? Well, the Philistines are a coastal people who migrated to the area in about the mid-12th century B.C., uh, if you read Judges, if you've read Judges, you hear about the Philistines often. And again, remember, 
Our passage today, 1 Samuel 4 through 7, takes place during the time of the book of Judges. So we're still in the period of Judges at this point in Samuel. So Israel goes to fight the Philistines and they set up camp at Ebenezer, a location called Ebenezer. And the Philistines are at a camp called Aphek. Now uh, the map should be up there and these are two camps that are near each other about two miles away. And uh, Ebenezer is about 20 miles uh, west of Shiloh, which is where we have been uh, to start out Samuel. Now, they encounter, they go to battle with the Philistines, and the first battle kills 4,000 Israelites, and they lose. And therefore, the, the leaders, the elders, are wondering, why has Yahweh, why has God of Israel allowed them to lose to the Philistines, to be defeated? And that is a good question. They, they should be asking that. But the response is the wrong one. The response is, well, let's go grab the covenant of the ark, uh, excuse me, the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, which is in Shiloh, 20 miles east of here. And so they go grab the ark and they bring the ark along with them. And if you've never seen uh, the ark of the covenants, uh, there should be a picture uh, coming up on it. Um, it has it has the uh, angels, the cherubim on top, and that's the mercy seat. And the ark of the covenant it wasn't a good luck charm. That's not exactly how they viewed it here. Some people will talk about the story and be like, well, they want a good luck charm, so they brought the Ark of the Covenant. No, the Ark of the Covenant is literally the throne of God in their presence. So to the elders, to the leaders of Israel, they're thinking if we bring the Ark of the Covenant, we're bringing God himself. Literally, his presence would be among us. So that's what they were hoping, that if God comes with them, that it would be enough. And along with the ark, the two priests, uh, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, as we talked about last week, they have to come along with the ark. Now, remember the judgment we read about last week. We know that Hophni and Phinehas, they have to die on the same day as God said they would. And we have a military engagement going on here that the Israelites just lost to. And now they're bringing the ark to be involved. We, the readers, the hearers, should be anticipating, boy, this sounds like a setup. Sounds like this judgment has the right situation uh, right here for this to be fulfilled. So the ark comes to Ebenezer and the presence of the ark becomes known to the Philistines because the Israelites, they get excited. They, they see the ark, they see, they're like, God is with us now. He's in our midst and they start shouting, thousands of them. And so two miles away at the camp of Aphek, the Philistines are, they hear the noise and they're like, the gods of Israel are with them. And notice this language here. The Philistines, they don't say the God of Israel, they say the gods of Israel. And this gives us insight into the theology of the Israelite nation at that time. Apparently what they were practicing wasn't lining up with the Torah. They were practicing, they were allowing, as we'll hear about later in chapter 7, they were worshiping other gods. They weren't just worshiping one God. And they practiced this to a point where even their enemies thought, Israel is a nation of many gods, not one God. And the Philistines initially, they are scared. They are fearful. But then at the same time, at some point, that fear turns into motivation and courage. We see this switch from verse 8 to verse 9. They're like, hey, let's go to war. Let's not let their God overcome us. Let's go to battle and let's overcome them. And a battle does ensue and Israel is horribly defeated. But the question is, why is this? See, the first defeat should have had the Israelites thinking, why did we lose? 
and going to Yahweh, seeking wisdom and discernment as to why they lost, and, and maybe even leading straight away to confession of sin and, and repentance. But that's not what they do. Rather, they kind of act like spoiled children. And, and, and they tr- try to twist God's arm into doing what they want him to do. Rather than doing what Yahweh would want them to do and have them go to him and confess their sin and, and try to restore that relationship, they're like, well, we'll just bring God with us. We'll just drag him into the fight with us. We'll go grab the Ark of the Covenant. We'll just bring him with us, and surely he'll fight with us. He'll have no choice for, his, for the sake of his glory and for the sake of his honor. He'll fight for us. But that's not how it works. And failing to recognize and acknowledge their sins during the first defeat, they are defeated even more so the second time. And that first defeat should have had them ponder the word of God, specifically Leviticus twenty six seventeen, where God says, I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. As well as Deuteronomy twenty eight twenty five, where it says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall, you shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. These two passages, these two verses here, describe one of the consequences for Israel not being faithful to the Mosaic Covenant. See, covenant unfaithfulness leads to covenant curses. And this is part of the covenant curses. If you're going to be covenantly unfaithful to God, to the covenant that you agreed upon, well, expect, confident, expect those curses to happen. So therefore, despite the presence of God and his ark, Israel is utterly defeated. Now, in the aftermath of Aphek, 30,000 Israelite soldiers fall. But even worse... The ark, of the, the ark of God is captured. And along with the capture of the ark, the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas have been killed on the same day. So messengers in one particular returns to Shiloh, some 20 miles away. And Eli, he's anxiously waiting. He's concerned. The thing is, he's not concerned about his sons. He's concerned about the ark. And that's the right attitude a priest, a high priest should have of Israel. The ark of of God is the big thing to be concerned about. And he is rightfully concerned. And he's sitting there as priest and judge. And even before the messenger gets there, Eli has to hear the, the wailing, the crying, the tears that are being shed as people find out the news of their husbands, their sons, their, their brothers have been slaughtered, that Israel has been utterly defeated, that the ark, their, their, their symbol, who, who God is being with them, has been taken. The whole identity has been marred because of this battle. So Eli asks for details. Surely he knows in his heart what has happened, but he needs to hear it. And he can't see, as the text tells us, Eli here is, he's 98 years old. Now, let's talk about the time frame here. He's 98 years old. This battle occurs about 1080 BC. So Eli was born about 1178 BC, just to give you some perspective here. That's during the 40-year period rest uh, that was brought upon by Deborah and Barak of Judges 4 and 5. And this would make Samuel who was born 1105 B.C., Samuel at this time is about 25 years old. All right, so he's about 25 years old, about the time that this battle, that the Ark of the Covenant is captured. 
So at the mention of the ark being captured, not the death of his sons, but the mention of the ark of the covenant being captured, Eli falls over, and in the process, his neck breaks. Yes, he was old, but notice that the, the, the author here intentionally identifies that he's a heavy man. Right? He was old, and a 98-year-old man falling should, would cause anyone to be concerned, but if he's a heavy man, even more so, but the heaviness is, is brought to light for a particular reason. Why do you think Eli was heavy to begin with? We talked about this last week. Remember, his sons were holding the Lord's offering in contempt. They were eating whatever they wanted to eat, especially the, the fat of the meat that was supposed to be burned and offered to God. They were consuming it, and even Eli himself was benefiting off of this abuse. So he was eating more than he should. Now, this is the interesting part. In the Hebrew, the word for heavy and glory same root word there, just different variants, same root word. So to say heavy into glory in Hebrew, if you're not up on your Hebrew, you, you're not going to tell the difference. Very similar language being used here. And so we cannot help but think that the author here is intentional in pulling this emphasis out. See, the priests should have been helping bring God's glory to Israel, but instead the priests were stealing God's glory, and thus they themselves were becoming heavy. And as such, Eli, since he is fat, this fatness, this heaviness, this glory that he took from Yahweh ultimately leads to his demise. And in this process, the glory of God departed Israel. And even on the same day, the wife of Phinehas gives birth to a son. Eli doesn't find this out. He's dead at this point. Phinehas' wife gives birth to a son. And and there should be some good news in this, right? Because For a Hebrew woman to give birth to a son, a redeemer, that's good. But she's not happy. Even though she's going into death, the the women around her are trying to encourage her, like, hey, take heart, you gave birth to a son. But yet she names her son Ichabod, which means where's the glory? Where has the glory gone? And as verse 21 tells us, the ark of God has been captured along with the deaths of the priests. And this is why she is thinking this. And she dies shortly thereafter. So chapter 4 is not a nice tale for Israel, is it? You would think that for God's people, there would be a happy ending. But that's not how this story goes. Not here, not chapter 4. It is most certainly a tale of sorrows and woes. But thankfully, there is a chapter 5. But before we get to chapter 5, there's still some more aftermath that we need to talk about. Chapter 4 here in 1 Samuel does end. But the bad news doesn't. Shiloh, at some point, following the battle, ends up being destroyed. Now, again, Samuel doesn't talk about this. But this Shiloh being destroyed is a significant event for the nation of Israel. Remember, Shiloh right now is acting like their Jerusalem. It's their place of worship. So this would be, and it is safe to say this, and I'll tell you why in a moment, this is the equivalent of the destruction of Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C., In 586 B.C., when Babylon comes in, breaches the walls of Jerusalem, and burns the temple. And this is why why we know it happens. We read about the destruction of Shiloh in Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 12 and 14, as well as chapter 26, 6 and 9. And it's referred to as as a horrible moment in the the nation of Israel. It's it's often reflected upon as a judgment of God on Israel um, that scarred them as a nation. We also know that Shiloh um, was destroyed because, well, it's never mentioned again. 
a significant place of Shiloh, we never read about again in the book of Samuel. We never go back to it. And the ark is never returned there. And you think that it would go back to where the tabernacle was, where the tent of meeting was, but it doesn't. Also, we have archaeological evidence that confirms that uh, Shiloh met a fiery destruction sometime in the mid-11th century, which is about the time that we're at now. So this defeat is also what led to Philistines being able to oppress Israel for much of the 11th century. It's what caused Israel to become a facile state to the Philistines. And this is the context in which Samson um, fulfills his role as judge. That's why, like, when you read Samson, you see, like, a lot of Philistines and Israelite mixing going on because the Philistines were the ruling power at that time, and and they could do that. They were at that point, and we'll talk more about that at the end. So darkness has set on Israel because light has been taken. The glory of God is gone. The priests are killed. Shiloh is destroyed. But we have to remember, there is a remnant that still remains. Just think of Samuel's family that that we've been talking about. And think of Samuel himself. He himself is still alive. He himself is still doing what God has called him to do. So there is still a remnant. But let's go with the ark as it goes to the hands of the Philistines. After judgment on Israel, God intends to judge the Philistines. Just as he judges Assyria and Babylon after he uses those people to judge his people, he judges the very instrument which he uses for judgment. He's going to do the same thing to the Philistines. He uses the Philistines to judge Israel, and now he will judge the Philistines themselves. So the Philistines take the Ark of God, and they bring it to the house of Dagon, their god, and Ashdod. And on that map, you could see uh, we got the battle of Aphek and um, Ebenezer there, up there in the, the middle portion, northern part, goes all the way down to Ashdod. Right? This is a map of how, where the Ark of the Covenant has traveled. So they bring it to Ashdod and they put it next to the statue of Dagon. Now this placement not only signifies that Dagon is greater than Yahweh because he's in his temple, but the fact that it's next to Dagon, set beside him, is like saying Yahweh, the God of Israel, is Dagon's servant. And so, of course, this is an abomination to Yahweh, and he won't stand by it. So after the first night, the people come into the temple, and it's Dagon face down. And like, well, the statue fell over. That's interesting. And they put the statue back up, thinking not much of it. But the next day they come in, not only is the statue face down, but that face has no body because the statue has been decapitated. Not only decapitated, but the hands have been dismembered, have been taken off. This is a typical ritual execution. Um, And it won't be the last time we read about this type of execution in Samuel, except the next time we read about it, it won't be a statue. So this was clearly an uh, execution-style type destruction to the statue of Dagon, symbolizing, yeah, Yahweh is nobody's servant, right? Uh, Dagon serves Yahweh. Dagon has been judged by Yahweh. He has been ceremonially executed um, and removed. And so because of this, and not, not just only that, not only just the statue, but the people of Ashdod, they're struck with tumors, right? Tumors start coming up on their bodies. And so they don't want, they want nothing to do with, with this ark. So the people of Ashdod are like, let's 
give it to somebody else. And so they sent it to the birthplace of Goliath, the city of Gath. But again, when the Ark of the Covenant goes there, the hand of Yahweh goes against the people of Gath. Panic ensues and more tumors arise. And so the people of Gath like, nope, not us. And they send it away. And they send it to another major city of the Philistines, and that's Ekron. And here at Ekron, it's not just tumors. People start dying. And the people who weren't dying, they themselves were struck with tumors. And this would be the last straw. All right, so we have five major cities in the Philistines. These are three of them. And so they gather the leaders and they say, send it back from whence it came. We want nothing to do with the Ark of the Covenant. And so these events of God judging the Philistines in chapter 5, they last about seven months. And you would think that since the Philistines want to return the Ark of God to Israel, things would be looking up, that we would have our happy ending. But again, not yet. For even as we go into chapter 6, this tale is still a tale of sorrows and woes. See, the Philistines, they're tired of dealing with the Ark of the Covenant. And so, like, we have to send it back. And they gather the religious experts. And the religious experts like, okay, well, if you're going to send it back, send it back with a guilt offering. There's some, there's some wisdom there. Even the unclean, the ungodly, those detestable to God are like, they, they kinda, they're, they're learning their lesson. And so they suggest a guilt offering made up of golden tumors and golden mice, uh, five of each representing the five lords of Philistines and their five cities, as uh, verse 17 of chapter 6 tells us. And in this process, they are to give glory to Yahweh. So these people who initially thought Yahweh is going to serve our God are now giving glory to Yahweh. And in this advice, notice that the religious experts, they reference the Exodus event. They say, don't be like Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Don't harden your hearts lest you receive that kind of a judgment. And we know how that ended for them. And so the Exodus event is well known in the area at this time still. And they warn them, don't harden your hearts. And they go on to tell them how they should send this offering off. Because they're not 100% convinced that Yahweh's behind it. I mean, they're fairly convinced, but they're open to the possibility, well, maybe this is a coincidence. So get two cows and keep the calves away from them, right? Because we don't want the calves to distract them and lead them astray. We want this to be a controlled environment, so to speak. So get two cows in a cart, put the offering in there, put the ark in there, and send the cows off. If the cows go straight to Beth Shemesh, it's Yahweh. If they turn to the left or the right, yeah, it's not Yahweh, it's just a coincidence. A highly unfortunate coincidence. And so the leaders let the ark go with the cows pulling They follow the cows, and the cows go straight for Beth Shemesh, Israel. And they don't, cows don't even look to the left, they don't go to the right, they go straight there. And the Philistine lords follow the cows up to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the Israelites, they're working the fields, right? This is seven months later, it's probably about harvest time. Battles, typically in the ancient Near East, would start about springtime. We we still kind of do this in Afghanistan, because in the wintertime, it's, it's hard to rage war when you're snowed in, it's cold, you got to provide for your family, you got, there's more work to do, you got to cut wood, wood, so forth. So oftentimes, springtime would be the time that you would start the next year's military campaign, right? This is what David, he gets in trouble for, because at the time, when Keynes is supposed to go to war, he doesn't. And that's springtime. So this is probably about harvest time, right? Late, late fall, early fall, harvest time. 
Israelites are in the field. They're working. And off in the distance, you can't miss it. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's a beautiful thing. They see it and they rejoice. And rightfully so. And Beth Shemesh, it's a proper place for the Ark of the Covenant to return to. Right? If Shiloh was still standing, and maybe it was at this point, we were not sure you'd think that, but Beth Shemesh is still a proper place. Because Beth Shemesh is a Levitical city. Meaning it's a city designated for the Levitical priests. Uh, we get this in Joshua 21 when they're dolling up the land and the cities. Beth Shemesh is given as a city for the Levites to live in. And per Numbers 4, one of the roles of the Levites is to take care of the Ark of the Covenant. So you would think this would be the happy ending that we're waiting for. But not. Nah, it's not. Not yet. It's not how the story goes. In fact, this failure of the Levites fits right in with the other failures of the Levites of this period of the judges. Just think of the Levite in Judges 17, 18, who resided with the Danites and became his priest. Or the Levites in Judges uh, 19 and 20, who cut up his concubine's corpse into 12 parts after a night of brutal, brutal and constant sexual assault, which ignited a civil war. Then, of course, you have the story of Eli and his sons. And now we have the Levites here at Beth Shemesh. They're just falling right in line with their tribe. They had one job, and they couldn't do it. The Levites, they take down the ark, and they offer burnt offerings and sacrifices to Yahweh. That sounds good, right? I mean, like, like, you, like to us, like, that sounds right. It sounds like you should be offering sacrifices to God. This is a, a good thing, so why not, to, why not do it? Well, first, this is the this is where it starts to fall off the, the wagon, so to speak. They offered the cows that pulled the cart as a burnt offering. These are cows, not bulls, right? The females, not males. Leviticus 1.3 is clear that when there's an offering, it needs to be a male that is offered, not a female. So right there, we're like, well, that's not a good start. But this is the thing. Remember, as we talked about last week, the Levites haven't been holding the Lord's offering properly anyway for quite some time. Right? So, so this little misstep here, God, this isn't why God strikes them down. Right? This isn't why he strikes out against them. Rather, when we keep reading on, we find out that God strikes some of the men down because they looked into the ark. Numbers 4, 5, and 6 tells us that only those of the Aaronic priesthood of, Aaronic, of Aaron's family only they, are, only they can touch the cart. See, when, when they're in the wilderness and God is like, it's time to move, the Aaronic priesthood is to come to the Ark of the Covenant and they are to cover it. Right? They're supposed to cover it so people don't look at it and even those who are, are traveling with it, carrying it, don't touch the Ark straight away. They're not supposed to. It is holy. So here at Beth Shemesh, for safety, the first thing that they should have done find somebody, the Aaronic priesthood, and cover the ark. But that's not what they did. Instead, they take the ark and they place the ark on a rock, completely exposed. They do the offerings, they're celebrating, and of course, over time, it's hard not to. You can't blame them. All of us are prone to wander. Some of the men look into it. And just like the scene in Anna Jones with the Raiders of the Lost Ark, except minus the visible spirits, they're judged for it. And God strikes them down. Now, a sidebar here that we need to deal with. How many people did God actually strike down? 
Some understand it to be 50,070 people. And that's what the Masoretic text says. And the Masoretic text, that is the original translation. It makes sense. 50,070, that's what the Masoretic text states. Others, though, won't have that. And maybe your version here doesn't have 50,070. I know the ESV translates it as 70. And many modern translations do translate it as 70. Josephus, the ancient historian, he understood it to be 70 people as well. Some even translate it as five out of every thousand died, with a total death count of 70. So that's a more complicated translation, perhaps even a compromise, and that would put the population of uh, Beth Shemesh at about 14,000 people. Now, there are obvious issues with a large number of 50,000 people. That's a lot of people, and that's not the whole city. Specifically with the issue that did 50,000 people even live in Beth Shemesh, especially around this time? Now, numbers in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the argument, it's a common point of debate. Um, it's Just think about the, the wall that collapsed in numbers that killed 24,000 people. That's uh, got to be a big wall. Now, there are good, good points on either side. There are good discussions as to... Um, is it actually 24,000? Is it actually 50,000? The Hebrew, it's an old language. A thousand can mean a multiple things beyond just the number thousand. So there are issues. But the, none of those issues disqualify the word of God. And all these issues, depending on which view you take, can, are, can be wrestled with to a point. So just be aware that with numbers in the Old Testament, especially um, in the book of Numbers, especially, and even here, uh, there isn't always unanimous agreement as to how that is understood. Either way, the point remains the same. People died, and it was God who killed them. Right? It wasn't some for it wasn't the devil, right? The devil didn't kill these people. Right? We we often sometimes think when bad things happen in life, it's the devil. Maybe it's God. God causes bad things to happen. Not sinful things, but bad things. Bad and sinful, not the same thing. Suffering does not necessarily mean it's a sinful thing. Suffering can be a good thing, right? It can be an act of judgment. So here, God is the one who does the killing. So after this disaster, the men of Beth Shemesh, they respond like the Philistines. You act like a Philistine, you're going to get treated like a Philistine. So rather than doing some soul searching and pleading with God, as good Levites should have done, seeking repentance, they want to pass God along to another place. So eventually, the ark makes its way to a village called Kiriath-Jerim, to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And the ark is consecrated by a man named Eleazar, uh, which is a common priest name. So Eleazar is probably a Levitical priest here, and he takes responsibility of the ark. And this is where the ark remains until we go back to it when it's brought to Jerusalem. Now, Some 20 years pass from this moment. 20 years the nation of Israel languishes, laments after Yahweh. Yet despite the cries and the pleading, despite what has happened to the Philistines, to the Israelites at Aphek, and to the Israelites here at Beth Shemesh, there's no repentance. And it's been 20 years. Samuel, who has been serving as prophet and judge for Israel during this period, he now comes back into our story. And so, if you remember at Eli's death, Samuel is about 25 years old. This is about 20 years 
and some change later. So he's about 45 years old at this point. And Samuel challenges all of Israel. He says, if you're willing to return to Yahweh properly, if all of your heart, then rid your lives of the idols. Right? These are the idols. These are the gods that the Philistines knew the Israelites were worshiping. That's why they said gods of Israel. These are the gods, the idols that they have to get rid of. And then they have to devote themselves wholly to God, the great Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5. Right? This is what they're called back to, the Mosaic Covenant. And in doing so, Yahweh will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. This is a covenant blessing that they won't be oppressed by a foreign nation. Now notice Samuel doesn't mention the ark. He doesn't mention a need for a priest. All he mentions is simple repentance of the heart as evidenced by action. And that's key there. Anytime somebody repents to God, truly repents, there's always fruit of that repentance. It's never void of that. We must not think, as Jesus called the people, remember we talked about Matthew, uh, they go into the temple, they, they offer the sacrifice, and they go out just living how they want to go, and Jesus calls them robbers. They're stealing God's glory, thinking that they're safe because they go in, they offer sacrifice, but yet they can live as they want to live. No, we're called to repentance, and when we repent, we show it with evidence. And that's what Samuel's calling the Israelites to. They've been treating the Lord of contempt long enough. So now Samuel, his moment has come, and he's going to lead them into right worship and right living once again. Now, a side note here. Notice this took 20 years. Samuel's been ministering for a long time. And it's only now that this call is going forth. And I think for all of us, especially for pastors, but even for all of us as part of the body, when we deal with one another, be patient. Be patient. It might take 20 years for somebody's heart to get right, to get to a place where they're like, okay, I need to repent. Be patient with them. So Samuel calls them to gather at Mitzpah, and he will pray for them there. And as the nation gathers, they continue the repentance by fasting. They even draw water, water that they would probably be thirsty for. They draw the water. They put in the effort to take the water out from the water source, and they only dump it on the ground. And they do so as a sign of their confession. They recognize they're sinners. They confess that they're sinners to God. They do that verbally, and then they express it by dumping the water and by fasting, saying, our relationship with you, Yahweh, is more important than the sustaining ability of this water. So they recognize God, that he is enough, and they're showing it to him by their actions. And then at Mitzpah, Samuel judges Israel. Now the Philistines, they're controlling Israel at this point. And they don't like large gatherings, and it's not because of a pandemic. It's because they don't want these large gatherings to turn into a revolt. They don't want to have Israel to become mobilized. So they're not allowed to gather, so they clearly they hear about this gathering and Philistines like, we're going to go take care of this just like we did at Aphek. We'll take care of the Israelites. So they go up to Mitzpah. Now, if you remember back in chapter 4, who was initially afraid? The Philistines were. Well, now who is initially afraid now? Israel. But Israel doesn't back out. They plead with Samuel to intercede on their behalf, just as Israel once asked Moses to intercede on their behalf. And some even argue that Samuel, he's acting so much like Moses in the early chapters of Samuel, that he's the prophet 
that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18. Notice here, though, there's no request for the Ark of the Covenant. No arrogant assumptions are being made. Just a straight-up desire for a man of God to intercede with Yahweh, seeking mercy and favor. So Samuel offers a burnt offering of a nursing lamb, a young lamb, and he cried out to Yahweh for his people. And Yahweh answered. And he answered with a, a mighty thunder, a thunder so loud that threw the Philistines into confusion and into defeat. Now, Aphek, it was the Israelites who were yelling and who could be heard two miles away. But the efforts of man can never compare to the efforts of God. So the result of the battle is that land is returned to Israel. The Philistines stay out of the land, and there's even peace between Israel and another nation, the Amorites. Samuel would go on and he judges Israel by traveling from Bethel to Gilgah and Mitzpah every year, as well as judging in his home, Ramah. Now let's back up to verse 12, because this is where it all ties together. This is the point that we really need to chew on this morning. After the battle, when the victory was secured, Samuel sets up a stone between Mitzpah and Shen. He names the stone Ebenezer, meaning stone of help, for Yahweh had helped Israel. Our text today started with Israel in a place of the same name, except there the stone was not a help. In chapter 4, God was brought into the situation with darkened hearts, of people who treated him with contempt. The only thing the stone could do there was judge their wickedness. And as such, the stone becomes a stumbling block, a snare, a trap to Israel. Then the Philistines took Yahweh, and the Philistines, who they themselves are unclean, detestable, full of idolatrous practices, and there Yahweh does the same. He judges. After seven months, Yahweh returns to Israel, but again, when you act like a Philistine, you get treated like a Philistine. At Beth Shemesh, Israel learned a hard lesson. Being part of the family doesn't make you right with God. And again, Yahweh there becomes a snare, a trap. The people's hearts were still darkened and they were still unrepentant, thus deserving of judgment. Despite them being Levitical priests and being Levites. But here in the final chapter of our passage, the happy ending that we're looking for, we do eventually find. Though the ark is elsewhere, God comes to the aid of his people. The stone that had been tripping them up, that had been crushing them, that had been acting as a snare is now the stone of help. The stone of help it could have been in the beginning. This stone of help caused Israel to stumble in the beginning, but when Israel called upon his name with repentant hearts as witnessed by an evidence by wit or repentant works, God delivered his people. Now this depiction of God as a stone or a rock in the Old Testament, it is common. Even one of God's names includes it, the rock of Israel. This motif or theme of God being a stone that either crushes or saves, we see it throughout redemptive history. Isaiah 8, 13, 15, God speaking to Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. 
They shall be snared and taken. And again, in Isaiah 28, 16, a verse specifically referencing the Messiah uh, that is to come, who will deliver Israel, which we know the Messiah is Jesus Christ. Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. In other words, whoever believes will be saved, will be delivered. Psalm 118.22 speaks of the stone that was rejected becoming the cornerstone. Jesus himself, the very stone of help incarnate in the flesh, refers to Psalm 118.22 as referring to himself when he speaks of it in Matthew 21.42-44. The Apostle Peter speaks of Jesus as the stone who was laid in Zion in 1 Peter 2.6-7, where he writes, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Paul writes the same thing in Romans 9.33 as well. So God helped his people in the 11th century by his mercy in response to their repentance and their faith in him for the sake of his name and glory. Today, our Ebenezer, our stone of help, is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was crucified for our sins. Now, some people will talk about the Ebenezer as, hey, you need to find your Ebenezer. You need to find your rock. You need to find your, your book, whatever. And, and whenever you're in danger, put that before you. And, and they'll give something more power than what it's supposed to be. It's one thing to say, hey, you got your Bible or you got your cross around your neck. Allow that to point you to God. The Ark of the Covenant should have pointed the Israelites to God, to his presence, to his mercy, and caused them to repentance. We don't grab onto any artifact or, or, or anything that's materialistic and expect special power from it. That's not biblical. And then this passage should be clear on that. Having even the Ark of the Covenant is not enough. It's about being in the right relationship with God. So our Ebenezer is Jesus Christ who was crucified for our sins so that whoever calls upon his name and looks upon the Son in faith with a devoted heart will not be cast out from his presence. The very stone that will judge the world will become a sanctuary for those of us who call upon his name. He will become a safe haven, a place of help and Sabbath rest. So perhaps you have been taking the Lord for granted. You've been taking his offering in contempt as we talked about last week. Maybe you've been living like a Philistine, engaging in various ungodly activities and worshiping various idols, devoting your time, your energy, your money to futile pursuits. Maybe you've been engaging in activities like drinking or sexual promiscuity or a lifestyle that's unbecoming of a believer. Maybe you've put that job promotion, that acceptance from family members or friends, or that desire to be popular online above And before your relationship with God, perhaps you have even cursed God at some point in your life. Maybe you've even cursed God this morning. Or maybe you have been living like the Beth Beth Shemeshites. That's a tongueful. Assuming that since you grew up in the church raised by godly parents or that you've been involved with the church for so many years, you can do what you want. After all, you're in the house of God, you're part of the body of Christ, 
So clearly God's favor is upon you. You're an Israelite. You're a Levite. Why would God strike you down? So you live like a Philistine, doing what is detestable to God and thinking you can get away with it. Well, may our passage this morning, may it be a warning to you and to all of us that no, you cannot get away with it. God sees all. But at the same time, if any of these situations describe your situation, know this. The stone that will crush, the stone that will cause others to stumble, the stone that will judge rightly is a stone that is willing to be a sanctuary, a safe haven. Jesus Christ, our God, he is a merciful, gracious God. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin of those who call upon his name in faith. At the same time, he will not clear the guilty. He will one day judge everybody for every word and deed that proceeds from the heart. And he will do that to the righteous and the wicked. So let us all call upon Jesus Christ, whether it's for our first time or whether it's been too many times to keep track. Let us raise our Ebenezer before God so that he may look upon his son in the place of our sin. And if we are suffering not because of our sins, if we're suffering because of the darkness of this world, whether we struggle with anxiety, depression, or maybe, especially on Father's Day, we're mourning the loss of a father. We're mourning the loss of a loved one, and it hurts to live. Call upon him. Fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes upon the one who wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though moments later he will raise them, raise Lazarus from the dead. Look to him. And when the devil and his Philistines, those of the world, come at you, tempting you to sin, to act like they are, reminding you of your past sins, reminding you of your failures and how worthless and useless you are, because they will, don't be overcome. Turn to our mediator, Christ. Be like the Israelites who turn to Samuel for intercession. We have one mediator between us and God, and that's Jesus Christ. So when you're prone to wander like the Israelites, go to Christ. Go to our Ebenezer, our stone of help, and have him plead for us. He's the one who judges, not the world. He is the one who will condemn, not the devil. So stand tall and firm on the foundation of the rock of Israel. This Ebenezer, this stone of help, is why we gather on Sundays. It's why we partake in communion. When we take the elements, we are reminded of the life of Christ by the bread that represents his body. We are reminded by the blood he shed for our forgiveness of sins so that he may be our intermediary, our stone of help between us and God, so that we may be reconciled and restored with God, our maker. And in that, we look forward to the feast we will partake of with our Ebenezer in the flesh at the end of days with the rest of our brothers and sisters in Christ and the fullness of his glory and the absence of sin, absence of suffering, when there will be no more tears, no more pain, and no more death. Let us pray. Father, thank you for these words out of Samuel. Thank you for recording this for us to learn from, for allowing uh, the Israelites to be 
living examples for us, Father, who have now gone past, obviously. Help us not be arrogant in this matter, Father, thinking that this cannot, does not apply to us. Help us recognize that we have many idols in our lives. We're surrounded by a society that loves to tolerate a variety of beliefs, loves the idea of tolerance um, at the cost of exclusion and at the cost of your holiness. Sanctify this nation, but especially sanctify your people. We expect the nation to act as they act, Father, and we, we pray for them and we ask that you use us to redeem the PR neighbors and our communities, but your church, your bride, should be pure, and it isn't. If we're honest, Father, we have many idols, many things that we give worship to that we ought not to. Forgive us. Help us to repent of these sins as a church and as individuals. Even in our individual lives, Father, there are things that we do, perhaps behind closed doors and perhaps not, Father, that we should not do. Forgive us. Help us not to be arrogant. Help us not to think that just because we've been baptized or because we partake of communion that you'll look the other way. We know you won't. Help us understand that, please. Guide us into a life of truth, a life that is the way of the light so that we can be the witness that you want us to be and that we can be drawn near and close to you, sanctified by the blood of your son, washed by his word. May your spirits divide our souls. May it convict us. May it bring to light the sins that we're committing, especially those ignorantly. Help us as a body here walk together as one body not as individuals isolated, but as one family. Help us rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, and help us correct and rebuke as needed. Help us to edify one another, Father. And we do this not so that we can have our fill or our say, but so that you may be glorified. Help us serve one another as your Son has served us. Help us model that attitude. Encourage us, Father, when the chips are down, when Times are dark and we struggle to see the light. Help us see the light that's within us. That is your Holy Spirit. Nothing of us, but it's you that's the light. Help us go to your word, the source of the light, Father, and help us to be reminded of the promises that you have given us. Help us cling to you during these times. Father, we ask all this, Father, as we come to your table, the table that your Son has set before us. Help us to honor it rightly this morning. We ask that you bless the bread and the juice as we partake of it. And as we come up, Father, may our eyes, as we look up, look to our brothers and sisters who partake of this act as we remind ourselves that we are baptized believers, that we are members of the new covenants, that we have been washed by the blood, that we are forgiven, and that we are part of one body and that your son is the head, and that we look forward to the day of when your son will return in the flesh to judge the righteous and the wicked. We give this moment to you, Father, and we give our lives to you for the sake of the gospel. And in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we ask all of these things, Father. Amen. All right, so